Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not starting a new series. We've got plenty ahead of us in 2 Corinthians. But we continue this discussion on the doctrine of the church. And if you have not picked up a handout, I did have handouts placed in the back. If you don't have one, just so you know, we continue our series on what the Bible says about the church. And this evening, we'll consider the aspects of the church. I'll talk about what I mean by that in just a few moments. But to get us started, we're probably going to look at several uh, Scripture readings this evening, just so you know. This is, again, more of a catechetical time, uh, a time of instruction more so than a kind of expository preaching like we see in the mornings. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 1-3, this is Paul, of course, writing under inspiration of the Spirit. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And here he explicates what he means by the church to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, we consider, continue uh, considering this question, what is the church? And we've begun uh, addressing uh, from various vantage points what it is that Scripture says the church in fact is. We began that first week just by way of reminder, that d- describing that the, the central message that we find uh, to the Old Testament and to the New Testament is the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, that is the content of his message in the Gospels. Uh, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the expectation of Moses and the prophets concerning this fulfillment of what has, is to be expected has come through the work of Christ. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the Gospel. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, now we say from this side of the cross, the kingdom of God has come. As we've seen, uh, the way in which the New Testament talks about the church, the church is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. But where's the church to be found? Is it to be found in a particular building? Well, we found that uh, that, uh, when we looked two weeks ago, that the scriptures use a number of glowing metaphors for the church to describe the relationship of Christ to his bride. These metaphors all highlighting a particular feature of the, uh, of the mystical unity, that, that sacred bond that is found between Christ and the church. It's the relationship of a husband to his wife. It is the relationship of a vine to the branches. It is the relationship uh, of the head of, a, of an assembly to the parliamentary body itself. It is the cornerstone to a building. It is the cornerstone to a household and a priesthood. Well, what we need to focus on this evening is to recognize that the church is now not some amorphous blob. It's not just kind of some freely word that we use to to, to describe something that doesn't really exist. It's speaking of a particular body of people, a distinct entity, an entity that finds its essence in the union Christ shares with his church. I think this is an important distinction that we have to understand that that union is not found under our allegiance to a particular uh, 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 earthly leader. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church finds the union of the church under the headship of the papacy. 
This is not how I believe the New Testament teaches these things, not what the, the, the Reformed faith, how it understands the Scriptures. What it is, is we find that the church is united, not under uh, the authority of your local pastor, but we are bound in union with Christ. But because we've been united to Christ, we're also bound to all those who have put their faith in Christ as well. Such that the New Testament will say over and over again, we are His body using the language of hands and feet, a nose, a mouth. We are instruments of our Savior. This evening, what I'd like us to do is to look at yet another facet of what the Scriptures say about the church. And now, we are, we're going to start taking a step back and looking at the church from particular vantage points, as if we were using a, a, a camera and having a documentary. Um, I think that especially as you look at the Confession of Faith, chapter 25, and we're not going to confess that or read that tonight, but I encourage you to read that throughout the week. Um, there are certain definitions, certain aspects that the whole of Scripture brings out that helps us to understand the nature of what the church is. Again, these first uh, few weeks, uh, if you recall, uh, we have the, this series broken up into three large chunks each um, mini-series when this broader series taken three or four weeks. First is the question, what is the church? Um, what's its purpose, and then finally, how does it work? Um, and tonight, we continue asking the basic question, what is the church? And so I'd like us to take this, uh, the, consider these four aspects of what the church is. You see this here on your handout, as we'll consider the invisible and visible nature of the church, the local and universal aspect of the church, uh, the church as both organism and organization, and finally the church militant and the church triumphant. Think of these as various facets looking at a jewel from uh, particular vantage points. This is what we are doing this evening. Uh, the first is uh, probably the most um, esoteric um, uh, type of uh, 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 of our four aspects to, to get a hold of. It might take us a little bit longer to, uh, to kind of grasp what it is that's going on uh, here, uh, but I think it is worthwhile having this be begin. So four aspects. First, we'll consider this uh, of the invisible, invisible church. Um, what we see here, if you, if you look at 1 John chapter 3, for instance, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. And you can write these things down if you want on the handout. You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna have, take the time for us to go to every passage, but uh, here we're going to just look at various snippets, various phrases that we find in the New Testament uh, that uh, uh, focus on these uh, particular features. What we find in 1 John 1 3, uh, John says this, is that which we have seen and we have heard concerning the incarnate, incarnate work of Christ, we also proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the goal in which, uh, of our proclamation is that you might have fellowship with us. And yet we find is there's not just a horizontal aspect to the church. We just don't want you to join this little social club. Rather, he says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And of course, by implication, the Spirit. Uh, in other words, there's both a vertical and a horizontal aspect to the nature of the church, and the binding feature is that of union with Christ. That the communion we have with one another is grounded in something more central, and, it, and what locates the, the, the fellowship that we have with, another, with one another is not uh, whether or not we fall into the same tax bracket. It's not whether or not we come from the same uh, kind of uh, ethnic lineage, uh, it's not even our own kind of common uh, interests or political affiliations. Rather, the union that we have is because we share a common bond that we've been bound to Christ. 
I've put my faith in Christ. David has put his faith in Christ. Jones has put his faith in Christ. Gary, and so on and so forth. Because we put our faith in Christ, we are now bound to one another. And this is one of the things that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets at in his, his marvelous little book, Life Together. Uh, that, that there is a, a, a celebration of life. There's a real, a real liveliness, a real livelihood that is to be found because we are united to our Savior. It's something that makes this distinct from the Kiwanis Club or the Boy Scouts. Uh, or being a member of uh, any given uh, political party. One benefit of uh, our union with Christ, the fact that we now get to enjoy a, a deep-rooted fellowship with one another uh, that transcends those basic boundaries or categories that the world uh, uh, knows communion to, to exist by. So what we see, or maybe if I could put this slightly differently, Despite the fact that, 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 that the church has this invisible aspect to it, in other words, that we have been united to Christ by the Spirit, at the same time, we're not just simply spiritual beings. We have bodies. And so that invisible church is always visibly manifested. And this is what we mean by the visible and invisible distinction. We're not talking about two different churches. There's not an invisible church over here and a visible church over here. Um, I, a few years ago, I uh, served at a church where uh, there was a visitor who, uh, who uh, had come uh, and his family and, and somebody had asked them, uh, or I, I guess it was the pastor who had asked them, he says, you know, what, what member, you know, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper that day. And uh, the pastor had asked him, he says, what, uh, what church are you members of? They said, oh, we're, we're members of the invisible church. And the pastor, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, says, well, you could partake of the invisible sacraments then, <laughs> you know. Um, Trying to get at a point, not trying to be mean, but trying to, to, to emphasize the fact that, you know, sometimes people use this uh, uh, invisible, visible distinction by saying, well, I'm just part of the, the invisible body of Christ. I don't have to be part of the visible thing because the invisible church is important. Well, in one sense, yeah, but on the other hand, that's not really getting at what this is talking about. How is it that we def define the invisible church? Simply put, we could say this uh, here, and I have this under 1A, the visible church is simply this, it is all the elect all those who will or who have put their faith in Christ. And yet, when we talk about the visible church, we say that those members of the visible church are all those who have professed faith in Christ. Not necessarily that they have possessed faith in Christ, but at least that they have professed faith and they have joined uh, uh, you know, uh, members of a church I think that's important. It's one of the things, it's really difficult to get through the book of Hebrews without understanding this, uh, this particular distinction. Uh, really important distinction. Um, you know, um, to simply profess faith publicly does not simply mean that our hearts are automatically regenerated. 1 John chapter 3, uh, John will say, regarding uh, particular individuals, might be chapter 2 actually, he says, uh, such and such went away from us because they were never a part of us. A very strong statement that John makes concerning a particular situation going on in, his, uh, in that particular church. Uh, but recognizing this, this feature that uh, the, the visible church is what we might call a mixed bag. People who might profess Christ, but they might be hypocrites. People who profess Christ, but it might just be a show. They might not. They say so again. The essence of the church is found in our union with Christ. And people might be formally united to the visible body, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have truly put their hope in Christ. 
I think that's an important thing to recognize, uh, and it's important when we, uh, especially when we talk about the life of the church, uh, I think there are some who want to make the church be absolutely perfect, but one of the things we have to recognize is, you know, so long as, uh, you know, I'm a member of this church, this church at least, at the very least, will not be perfect, because I'm a sinner. See, the, the church, every congregation in, uh, throughout the whole earth will not be perfect until the Lord himself returns. The church will be full of both true believers and false believers. And I don't have uh, the, 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 you know, a, a, like a heart-o-meter uh, or, or a pair of special glasses that I can put on that I can determine who uh, the, the true believers are from who are the false believers. Uh, the, uh, the elders don't have that special, uh, uh, like a special superpower that enables us to do that. What is it that we do then? We have, to, we have to judge according to fruit. That's why Jesus says over and over again, it's by their fruit that you will know them. Uh, and so uh, elders could be uh, completely fallible, but they have to render a judgment. They have to say, look, we, we don't believe that uh, based off the fact that you are you know, uh, sleeping around on your, with your wife, uh, on your wife and, 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 and you're not, you're not uh, demonstrating repentance, I think those are grounds to think that perhaps you might not actually have put your hope in Christ. We're calling you to repentance. Perhaps you have been like David uh, and you have uh, fallen into sin. And guess what? If you turn to Christ, there is forgiveness and there is pardon. But there has to come that warning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he shall also reap. All these things to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness will not inherit the kingdom of God. We, we see it throughout the whole New Testament that uh, it's a mixed bag. Even Jesus' own uh, uh, 12 disciples, there was a false one in his midst. Jesus actually himself recognized it, of course. Jesus was not unknowing to these things. But one of the 12 disciples was not a true believer. So how, do, how should we expect that uh, anything less would be the case in any given congregation and so this is some of these distinctions that we make. So when we look at the visible church, we make that distinction to recognize and say, just because you're on the membership roster on earth doesn't mean your name might be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is a distinction that we see uh, in, uh, distinct from other denominations who might say, well, you know, the only way you're getting to heaven is if you join with this particular, uh, you know, X body, uh, this particular institution or denomination. Uh, one of the things that we have to say with the New Testament is that the basis of your salvation is faith in Christ and Christ alone. But it is going to manifest itself in a particular way where you will want to be joined to that body. You are baptized into a particular body. Baptism is not an invisible baptism. You are baptized with water in the, in the threefold name of, of, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit into a particular body. So to say, well, I, yeah, of course I'm a Christian, but I've never been baptized, I've never professed faith, I don't go to church. Uh, I'm, sometimes I might read my Bible, but I just really, me and God, you know, we have an understanding. It's not a biblical understanding of the church. Uh, I, I think one of the things that we find here in America is there's very much a kind of me, just me and my Bible type Christianity uh, that is really foreign to the New Testament. Uh, you, you look at Paul's letters, and, and the second half of all Paul's letters talk about what life looks like in the body of Christ. What does it mean to deal with other sinners? So Paul spent so much time in Ephesians saying, uh, have that posture of forgiveness, because somebody's going to sin against you, and you're probably going to sin against them too. So be mutually forgiving. 
Uh, look out for the best intentions of others. Always seek uh, that purpose of reconciliation and restoration. So when we talk about the visible church, again, we recognize that it's a mixed bag. It consists of all who profess Christ as well as their children. It's a simple reminder that we have in, the, uh, in Scripture is that, that Jesus does love the little children. You, you remember uh, uh, um, uh, Abraham who was given the circumcision under the, 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 the covenant of grace. Uh, he's given that sign, that seal. It's not just Abraham who should be circumcised, but it's his children as well to show that they're being uh, engrafted into the, uh, uh, to the physical, uh, they've been being uh, formally united to the, to the physical body of believers. They're being uh, united as part of that particular body. Under the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel. Under the New Covenant, it is that of the church. Of course, we're given a different sign. That's why we'll talk about the sacraments in, in several weeks, but uh, one of the things to recognize is, is uh, we do not believe in uh, regenerational baptism. Uh, that is, if you know, a, a baby, you know, we'll bring a baby forward to be baptized, it doesn't mean that, um, that, that the water actually regenerates them. No, it's a sign of the covenant. So you've been formally bonded to this body of believers, and now you have great privileges of being able to be part of this covenant where you sit under the ministry of the Word, where you grow up hearing the Word. Think of what, uh, for, for th- those in here who maybe did not grow up in the church, think of what it would look like looking back on your life where you hadn't come to faith and thinking, what would have happened if I had spent those 20 or 30 or 40 years having grown up under the gospel ministry? Think of what an advantage it is to have a child from uh, the very first week that they're born be placed into the church, to grow up under the nurture and education and the ministry of the Word where this shapes their entire worldview. And so the importance we see here when we talk about the visible and invisible church, and I've spent quite a long time on this one, because it, again, it's, it's a little hard, to, it's a little, too, a little esoteric to get, but the others get kind of uh, get easier. Uh, when we talk about the invisible church, we simply mean all those whom God will save. That's what I mean by all the elect. All those whom God has determined to save uh, will be part of the invisible church, even if they're not part of it yet. But part of the visible church, it's a mixed bag, it constitutes all those who profess faith in Christ and their children. And so there's something of an overlap here. Just because you're part of the visible church doesn't mean that you're, going to be, uh, that you're a member of the church invisible. But if you're a member of the church invisible, I'd say maybe nine times out of ten, so to speak, uh, you should find uh, that that expression of being united to Christ will express itself in being part of a body of believers. Yeah, and I, again, I'm not trying to speak of the eternal state of somebody who is, you know, uh, not a member of a church, uh, but who trusts in Christ and just hasn't formally joined. I'm not trying to make those, parse out those distinctions, but I am saying that typically, if you're a member of the invisible church, you'll want to be identified uh, with the, the body of Christ, right? Um, if Christ's kingdom is manifested visibly, um, and entrance into the church visible is through baptism, then, you know, it's, again, it's not an invisible baptism. You're actually, somebody's going to baptize you using visible water into an actual body. And so we're recognizing uh, just um, the relationship there. But mo- moving on, I probably could have spent more time uh, on that. But uh, some implications for this. One is that there are going to be hardships and scandals. If, if the, the, the visible church is a mixed bag of both believers, uh, real and believers feigned, then there are going to be hardships and scandals. There will be discipline cases in which it will re- result not in restoration, but in excommunication. There will be men who you thought were true believers who will repudiate the faith, and it's always discouraging. I tell you, uh, uh, maybe three or four years after I graduated seminary, I think I know six or seven guys I went to seminary with 
who have repudiated the faith. You know how discouraging that is? But it's a sad reality. Just because you have an MDiv doesn't mean that you're that you have actually truly put your hope in Christ. See, the litmus test is not the degrees behind your name. It's do you trust in Christ? Anyways, moving on. So much more we could say, I think, but I, I just want this to be kind of an introduction to the doctrine uh, of the church. Second thing is the, uh, the second aspect is the distinction between the local and universal. This is more of a geographic aspect, a geographic feature. Again, it's uh, 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 distinct, but... Um, uh, well, let me just stop there. I'm going to skip over that part. But just looking at it from a different uh, camera angle. Uh, one of the encouraging things about this aspect is it doesn't matter how small the church is. It might be a house church. It might be part of the underground church in China. Um, but uh, it's still considered part of the church. And each individual congregation you can call actually the church. You think of Matthew chapter 18, for instance, where Jesus is talking about uh, that, that case of church discipline. You know, if a brother offends you, go to him privately, uh, and then uh, if he cannot be persuaded or won over, you bring a, a witness, and after that, what do you do? You tell it to the church. So does that mean, if we're simply talking about the church as everybody on the face of the earth, that if somebody is brought up on a discipline charge here, that I have some type of email list of every congregation throughout the world where I send an email and I say, well, guys, uh, dear church throughout the world, James Roberts has been put under discipline. No, you, you don't. It's, so the, the idea when Jesus says you tell it to the church, the idea is you tell it to the local congregation so that each congregation in and of itself can be fully and completely referred to as the church. Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Paul says this, greet also the church in their house. Apparently, the church of Rome was a pretty small church as they were meeting in a house. You think of 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings. Again, uh, the, the Corinthian church, in one sense, a house church, but that small. You know, we might be thinking of some of these churches as being three, four, five hundred people, uh, but it might just be a dozen, two dozen people tops. Very small. so interesting when Paul writes these letters, sometimes at the end of these letters, he says, oh, say hey to Billy Bob and Jim, you know, whatever kind of the Greek versions of Billy Bob and Jimbo are. Uh, but, but he says, greet all these people. It's, it's very clear that this is a very close-knit, small congregation. And so there is a local aspect to the church where we can read about the church and think and recognize they're talking about particular congregations that in and of themselves are called the church. But at the same time, there's a regional aspect to the church. You think of Acts chapter 1, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8 says this, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Yet in light of other passages in the New Testament, it's very clear that there is not just one individual congregation in Jerusalem, but rather there are multiple congregations in the city of Jerusalem. Second uh, Corinthians 8 and 9 are uh, just one example of that. Acts chapter 9, for instance, uh, it says this, uh, so the church singular, notice that, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And yet, and so it's talking about all these multiple congregations. So on the one hand, we see certain portions of the New Testament will speak of a congregation as the church, local. And yet, it will also talk about regional areas where there are multiple congregations, still talks about it as the church, singular. And yet also, it will be sometimes spoken of as plural, 1 Corinthians 16.9, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Galatians 1.2, the churches of Galatia. 
And it's not just local, it's not just regional. Sometimes it's used, uh, a church is used in the singular to refer to one congregation. Sometimes church is used in the singular to refer to multiple congregations. Sometimes church is used in the plural to speak of multiple congregations. The New Testament uses all of these. And also we see a universal, and, and the, the, the fancy old school word for universal is Catholic. Uh, a Catholic sense uh, to the body of Christ. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, singular. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, speaking of the church in its entirety. Ephesians 5, 23, Christ gave him, uh, is the head of the church as a whole, and the list goes on and on and on. In other words, when we speak of the church, we could speak of the church as an individual congregation, multiple congregations, either collectively, singularly, or uh, as a collection, plural, of churches, and we can also talk about the church uh, in its totality. In other words, there, there is some type of interrelationship between congregations, and, and this sounds like a long way of getting to it, but what I'm, my point here is we are not simply an autonomous church that exists on its own. Acts chapter 15 is probably the, the most important test case that we see, where there's a particular pressing doctrinal and practical need that faces the church at large, and so there is a council where elders from multiple churches assemble in Jerusalem to determine uh, and decide, figure out in light of Scripture, how do we treat this particular situation? And when the response is given, guess what? A letter is sent out to all the churches saying, this is how you must respond 1 Corinthians 7.17, Paul writes this, says, this is my rule, not just in this local congregation, he says, this is my rule in all the churches. In other words, all the congregations, there is a relationship, a connectedness that multiple congregations have with one another. Now, you might want to ask, how can we account for both the local and universal aspects of it? Uh, what's the proper way forward? Long and, answer, long, uh, and short version is, well, the answer is Presbyterianism, uh, but uh, you'll have to wait just a few more weeks for me to get uh, to that. I'm, gonna, I'm making a, 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 a prolonged case. Think of it as a slow burn, um, that Christ has a kingdom and his kingdom is Presbyterian, uh, is, is how I like to put it. Um, uh, but I'm, making a, 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 I'm trying to make a biblical case for a Presbyterian form of church government, a form of government that makes sense of the relationship, not just of this church and uh, our identity as an individual congregation, but our relationship to other congregations as well. Um, you know what? I think I might just stop here. That's a lot, and we'll do the, the other two. Uh, not next week. Next week we won't have evening service because of the congregational meeting, uh, but two weeks from now we'll, we'll continue this. How about that? I, I don't want to overwhelm you. I, I thought that we could cover all this pretty quickly, but I get long-winded, so I apologize. Um, so church is visible and invisible. Church is local and universal. Um, clear as mud, right? If you have any questions, uh, once we uh, conclude with prayer, I'll be happy to, to talk about some of these things. But uh, again, this is just kind of an intro to what the New Testament has a lot to say about the church. Um, and I think if we get these categories under our belt, it really helps us to understand uh, why our church looks the way that it does. Well, let us, um, let us stand and sing the doxology.